Hello and welcome to Communities Forward. I'm your host, Ralph Carter. Communities Forward seeks to share the stories and experiences of people who are making a positive impact within their communities and neighborhoods, especially in the St. Louis metropolitan area. The Communities Forward podcast is brought to you by RISE Community Development. You can learn more about RISE and how we help make communities and neighborhoods better at www.risestl.org www.risestl.org. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Colleen Hafner about the importance of community development organizations within the St. Louis region, RISE's Community Development Financial Institution, as well as the challenges and opportunities experienced by women within the community development industry. Colleen joined RISE in 2018 as a project manager, but has recently moved into a full-time role as director of RISE's Community Development Financial Institution. And prior to joining RISE, Colleen was asset manager for St. Louis Equity Fund and vice president of its affiliate Gateway Community Development Fund. Colleen has over 11 years of experience in the housing and community development finance field, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. I want to always, I always want to start out by uh, introducing uh, the, whoever's participating and giving them a chance to give our listeners a little background on themselves. So do you mind doing that? Sure, sure. So Colleen Hafner, obviously here um, working at RISE as the CDFI director, most recently had been fulfilling the role of real estate project manager. Um I'm a lifelong St. Louisan. I've worked in the community development field for 14 years, um, which doesn't seem possible, but here we are. Um, and I really love kind of the, the track that my career has, has gone on. And I'm really, really excited about this next step um, of kind of growing the CDFI and um, what comes next for us as an organization as well. So give us a little more detail. So you went to college and then what happened when you, when you graduated from college, where did you end up going? Yeah. I mean, I, I stayed in town at um, UMSL and got a bachelor's in business degree over six and a half ish years of undergraduate studying while working. And, um, and so as I was looking for a job, I knew I didn't want to, you know, stay in retail, which was my college job and just kind of was looking around for something that, um, didn't feel very traditionally businessy. And this was just before the, the market crash um, in 2007. So I graduated in late 2006 and everything was going great from the economy standpoint, maybe great as we now know. Um, but, you know, I just couldn't find something that was like resonating with me after getting a business degree. I was like, maybe I didn't get the right degree. <laughs> um, but sure enough, something popped up on the you know, job posting board at school and it was a job with St. Louis Equity Fund. Um, it was a new position, a junior role that they were adding for staffing in the asset management department. And when I learned about the organization and read a bit, I was like, wow, this might be like a great combination of business, uh, finance, real estate. And it clearly has a community motive because they invest in affordable housing tax credits, which, as we know, you know, is kind of the primary tool to develop large scale affordable housing developments across the country. Um, do, you, do you mind pausing for a moment? Yeah. So I know we are very aware of the acronyms that we use, mm -hmm. the terminology we use, but some of our listeners may not be as familiar. Mm -hmm. What is the name? Explain the organization mm -hmm. that you just mentioned. And then mm -hmm. what is community development? What do you understand it to be? Sure, sure. No, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, so that, that organization, St. Louis Equity Fund, 
is one player in this system of this, this field that we work in, which we call community development, but, you know, it's an actual field of practice that's made up of folks um, from all angles of government, real estate, um, from nonprofit service providers, um, you know, there can be for-profit developers building housing, um, there are folks who are providing services to people living there. But the idea to me is um, it, certainly one that's evolved. Um, but to me today, community development just means supporting folks kind of in a place-based way where, where they live to meet their needs so that they can live the best life that's ahead of them and that they can feel those coming after them, whether it's their children or their neighbors can do the same. Um, I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> there's a lot maybe in that, in that statement, but to me, it's beyond just sticks and bricks. Um, and I think that a lot of focus gets put on that because that's the easy thing to point to when there's buildings going up or projects happening or buildings falling down and projects not happening. We can talk about that very tangible aspect, but as I've learned over the last 14 years, there's a lot of intangible, there's a lot of players and kind of, you can come at it from a lot of different angles, but the only way you're going to move forward is if you bring all those angles together. So that's what I think we do arise. And that's where I feel like I've kind of um, moved along my path, starting at St. Louis Equity Fund. So you started that organization and then what was the next step or what are some of the experiences? Uh, how did you make an impact in communities while you were there? Yeah, I mean, so as I as I kind of grew along that career and, and dipped my toes in those waters, you know, it took me a good, you know, six months to a year to really be able to describe to my own dad like what I did, and then it wasn't like some sort of tax fraud scam. <laughs> and once I realized, okay, this is like an incentive to build, you know, a private investment in a public good that's lacking in a community. Um, you know, I was able to kind of think more broadly about the big picture and um, one of the leaders there, John Weiss, who at the time when I started was um, president and CEO, he would encourage me and or assign me <laughs> to sit on different committees. Um, he would get asked to represent our organization in places. And I think he saw that I was pretty eager to learn and to dive in more deeply. And um, he was often giving me those chances to sit at that table. He was looking towards his retirement, I think, and didn't necessarily want to, you know, keep getting involved in committees and things. And um, I appreciated that. So in, in sitting at those tables outside of our office, um, you know, I was able to see, okay, here's what's going on in St. Louis. Here's the broader ecosystem. Here are the other players. Here's how government plays a role. And, um, and here are some of the gaps, like here's what's missing. And I started to think, okay, what can I do as a person just playing in this, in this space of the investor? What can I do to move things forward? Um, so I joined the Community Builders Network Board, um, was asked to join that, and that you know, further opened my eyes to the needs of the various nonprofits playing in this space um, and how we could be way more effective in unifying our voice and changing policy at a local level. Um, and that network has really built out significantly. This is their 10th year. I think I started like in their second year. Um, and it's just been amazing to watch what 
that collective voice can do. We have a lot of work to, to ahead of us still, but, um, but, you know, that certainly kind of pushed me forward in realizing, hey, if you want to move the needle, like there are ways at the local level to dive in, spend your time and energy, but you, you will see the, the benefits of that work before too long. What can some of our listeners, what would you like for our listeners to understand about just community development in general? Because some of us, so again, everyone who's, not everyone who listens to this podcast knows anything about what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes uh, there's a certain way people describe it in the public. You know, it's all about poor people. It's all about Mm -hmm. people who need to get Mm -hmm. a job. We're just giving away money. We're just building things for people who don't care and don't deserve it. How do you respond to, how do you push back against those kinds of thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. So the way I look at it to kind of get out of that deficit mindset is to um, ask folks to kind of reflect on their own community or what comes to mind for themselves. I think that that can help frame, um, you know, what, where the work is left to be done and how you as a person could plug in. But I think that when you consider your own neighborhood, whatever you define that is, um, and what are the pieces that come together to make that the desirable place that you choose to live? Um, is that because there are good schools for your children? Is that because there's a great park for you to walk your dog in? Is it because you enjoy the retail amenities and shopping that are nearby? Is it because you like that you're out in the country? You know, what are the things that um, make that place feel like home? And again, that you've chosen to live there. And then community development to me is the practice of filling in the gaps when those, when folks who, wherever they live, feel that um, all of those needs are not being met and identifying what's missing and the resources and the players and the actors to, to kind of fill those holes and pull things back together, knit that community back together. Um, I think that historically there's been, you know, so much focus, like you said, about, um, well, community development only happens in poor neighborhoods or, you know, the sort of after effects of different like urban renewal (laughs) efforts of that past where it was just like slum clearance and, you know, large scale demolition and sort of warehousing of poor people and, Many of the programs that we work with are like, you know, the successors to programs that, you know, led to those um, negative, negative viewpoints, I guess you could say, the kind of negative perspective that people have. Um, You know, I think sometimes you even just say the words HUD. And outside of our world, people is almost like a, you know, four, four letter word, you know, uh, whereas we just see them as like, you know, the necessary bureaucrats to kind of do the work that we do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think for folks who are not f- familiar with the industry, it's helpful to turn inward to your own experience, your own privilege in living in was likely a functioning community and then think about what your life would be like if any one of those aspects was not fully functioning. What do you think would need to happen to get it back on track? I'm hesitating not because something's wrong, but mm-hmm. I disagree with what you said. I'm just trying to think of how to frame this next question. Um, well, let's, I'll just, so what is a CDFI? Because mm-hmm. you work at RISE now, and you've been here how long? Uh, three years. 
and you came in for one position and you've mm-hmm. done that for a while and you're transitioning now too. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was hired, we always have had the goal, Rice Hut was already kind of on this track of, of starting a community development financial institution, which is, you know, very long <laughs> uh, title for, for this entity, but a CDFI. And so even though I was hired to do real estate project management, um, I had an interest in the CDFI. We talked about that and it was always going to be like sort of this transition I would go into. So that's ramping up now. And um, we are, CDFI is sort of its own industry within community development itself. It goes back to like the Clinton era from a formal standpoint, but I think the best way to describe it is um, a lot of folks are familiar with microloans such as like Kiva or other types of um, international platforms for funding small businesses. And um, the idea is that you pool funds together from various sources. um, And for us as a loan fund, lend them out for specific purposes um, based on, you know, uh, a particular niche that you want to fill that you feel the traditional financial institutions are not filling for whatever reason. Um, A community development financial institution can also be a bank or a credit union providing financial services, uh, could be a loan uh, or a venture capital fund, um, but and most commonly they are loan funds, like the one that we are starting here at RISE. Um, the two areas that we're focusing on are small business lending to, in particular, to minority-owned contracting firms and small business lending essentially to small um, real estate developers. When you say small minority contractors, what does that mean? So if I have a a tree trimming company, does that fit? If I have a laundry service, does that fit? I mean, Mm -hmm. so who should be interested in this kind of information? Yeah, so we're we're rolling out our program uh, to be geared towards folks who work in the construction field who are, um, you know, basically outside of their startup phase. So we aren't working with borrowers who are just starting a business today. There's other great partners in St. Louis that work with folks like that. And we're trying to fill a gap in in capital. So we're trying to address the needs of, you know, a contracting firm who maybe got two or three, four years under their belt or even longer and wants to grow their business to the next level. So they're out of that initial startup phase. They, um, you know, are working with a consistent stream of uh, general contractors, prime contractors, and they are, um, you know, trying to grow their ability to bid on larger and larger jobs. So, yeah, we are really focused on firms, too, that are owned by people of color, particularly Black uh, owners, uh, as well as women owners. And looking to not only make loans for them to, like I said, bid on that, that next size up contract so we can help them fund their startup mobilization, their initial payroll before the pay process kind of ramps up and gets going. Um, you know, one of the, the big needs that we hear is it can take, let's say you start a job on, you know, May 1st, it could 90 days until payment really coming in and you've got a crew on site 
and they want to be paid weekly. So you want your crew to keep showing up. You need, uh, you know, a source of cash to get them paid while you wait for your payment from the owner. Um, so we're trying to fill that gap. It is a program that was in existence for, for a long time, for over five years. Um, and it was a standalone nonprofit that was developed um, by a lot of partners in the construction field in St. Louis, as well as large anchor institutions, large financial institutions. And um, they were asking for folks to consider taking it over after their initial five-year term. They really felt like this program needs to continue to exist but we need an organization that is staffed and that can really provide more consistent services to these borrowers beyond just the loans. So um, I think Rise with its startup CDFI made a pretty compelling case because for so long, our primary focus has been on building the capacity of organizations. So not just doing deals, not just kind of doing the transaction, but building the capacity. So that's kind of where we are with that part of the loan fund. <laughs> um, it's exciting. Yep. That's, that's and there was a, so we, there's one specifically geared towards minorities, MBE, WBE, mm -hmm. minority owned business enterprises or women owned. Mm -hmm. And then there's a general one as well. Meaning if you have a, what is, what does that describe that one? For yeah. The other, the other big products that we have is, is a real estate development loan fund. Um, and so that's geared towards, Kind of the more traditional work that we do, but just at a smaller scale. So we rise um, have done a lot of work in real estate development, but most of it has been focused on some of those bigger, high-profile projects developed with that tax credit that I was talking about earlier. And we really see a need and hear a need. Um, we undertook a market study that kind of corroborated this need for flexible financing at a neighborhood development scale. So um, the, the property owner who either wants to renovate existing holdings, wants to acquire a couple new buildings every year, um, you know, wants to move into a market that they're not already in and build their portfolio. But when they approach traditional lenders are being asked to come in with 40, 50% equity. Um, and that for one is impossible for some owners and for two it's going to slow down others so the folks that maybe do have more cash still can't do as much when 50 percent of it is tied up um, and for for folks who haven't built that that balance sheet um, it's going to keep them from getting into the into the marketplace we see these sort of um, acting as like a a filter from one to the other because folks doing this type of smaller scale real estate development need a steady pool of contractors to do the work. Um, we need to build capacity for contracting uh, firms because they offer excellent jobs. They often are paying in St. Louis, if you're not union, you're paying prevailing wage on most jobs that are commercial in nature. Um, and so these are good paying jobs. And that's a great way for folks who maybe have limited education experience to get back into the job market. Um, and to pursue, you know, their own desire for career development, I think it's a great way to get started. But, um, you know, the, the risk that folks need to take on when you're, when you're going to lend to a small company like the, this is often too much for a regulated financial institution who have to abide by really strict underwriting. 
and in other communities, unlike St. Louis, um, there's there's been, there are some pretty um, pretty mature loan funds that can support the this real estate development work and these sort of um, non startup stage firms. Um, but in St. Louis, we've really had a lot of focus on the startup phase, and then a lot of focus on the big, large, flashy developments, and this kind of this gap in between. Um, so I really, I really think that that's going to be a great place for us to, to dive in. How can an opportunity like this, a CDFI like this, how can it make substantial change in, you know, communities of color, um, communities that have great need? How can this be something that uh, makes an impact? Yeah, I mean, when we think about, okay, what community development does in, in, um, and what a tool like a CDFI can do, to me, um, the central element is build wealth, right? I mean, that's like the core goal. If we are um, successful in what we're doing, then when we leave, when we're done with a, a deal that we've left that community in a position where wealth is more attainable because we've done something like help improve the property value of a number of buildings. Um, we, you know, again, a, you know, a job is one thing, right? An income is one thing, but um, building a business, building a small business, that is something that you can um, sell at a later date. That's something that has value. That's wealth or pass on to your children. Um, build collateral so that you can borrow for other things. Um, to me, it's wealth building, right? It's it's kind of breaking down that that racial wealth gap um, and finding the tools to kind of meet neighborhoods and individuals where they are uh, to, to kind of move them forward. So you are a woman. I don't mm -hmm. say that. I am. Negative, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a fact. <laughs> but you find yourself in a unique position. Well, not a unique position, but you find yourself uh, in an industry that has been male dominated, whether it's banking related industries or construction related industries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What have been the challenges and opportunities that you have experienced uh, over your career? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, yeah. Those. Uh, it has changed a lot since I started, uh, you know, in the the mid early two thousands, where most of the rooms were sh strictly male or one or two token women at the table, um, and you know, early on that was a big challenge, just because it's hard to find your voice um, when you're in a room and folks don't look like you. I mean, I think that any person who's ever been in a room that <laughs> with folks that don't look like them gets that feeling and that sort of pit of your stomach. Feeling. And it's certainly something that probably happens more earlier in, in your career. And as you gain confidence in your own knowledge and abilities, maybe it lessens, even if the room still doesn't look like you. Um, but it's something that, um, you know, it's frustrating to see kind of now looking back how it holds us back because you see sort of like raw talent and ability and desire and demand in folks. And then they're, they're silent. So for me, looking back um, just on the last 14 years or so, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a position now where I know when I need to listen and when I need to talk. Um, but I think early on, it was really hard to understand when to talk. And so I did a lot of listening to not what was going on in the room, but to the voice in my head. 
And to me, that's the biggest thing holding you back. It's the story you're telling yourself about what a everyone else is thinking. Um, you think that they're wrong or you think that they're, you know, missing a point or um, that they don't understand your perspective or whatever. And you're spending all this time and energy in your head and you're not really listening to what's going on in the room. And um, you're not kind of testing those waters to build your own confidence around, um, you know, speaking up and, and being able to, to actively participate in that room. And it sort of just delays that unnecessarily. Um, but again, I think a lot of that comes and, and I think maybe many people are also familiar with that sort of imposter syndrome feeling. Um, and those kind of go hand in hand, right? Like that voice in your head really is imposter syndrome. No one else, <laughs> no one else ever believes that you don't be deserve to be at that table, right? Most of the time, folks just sort of accept who's there as like, oh, they all should be here. But if you don't speak up and you don't um, start actively participating, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And you can't get into your foot into the next door. You don't get asked into the next group or whatever it is um, because folks don't understand what it is you're going to bring. So, and then, you know, the cycle repeats. So that's a long way. I'm not even sure I've totally answered your question, but just sort of in thinking about how gender has um, impacted my career trajectory, I, I do look back and think, man, I really wish I would have not spent so much time and energy not listening to the actual conversation and learning and di diving more into the technical and expertise side of things and listening too much to that voice in my head that was saying, why are you here? You don't deserve to be here. You don't know. These people know more than you, which was not always true. <laughs> so... So you part you essentially answered the next question I was going to ask was what would be your advice to your younger self? But yeah, what yeah. would you say to uh, young? I hate to use this phrase, young women. Please forgive yeah. me. But, sure. Uh, women Spoke who are starting out, kind of. Yeah. 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 So what would what would you say to them? Uh, so again, you just said what you would say to yourself, or what you mm -hmm. wish you would have done differently. What would you say to them uh, as they are seeking to begin to make their careers in the industry? Yeah, I mean, when I do have this opportunity, whether in these days on a Zoom or in the in the olden times over coffee or lunch, I try to first just call out, you know, immediately that imposter syndrome, because instead of like asking someone if they feel that way, I just go in kind of assuming that they have some level of that because I don't really know anyone who doesn't. Um, and so it's like, let's not beat around the bush. Like, I want you to know that I see you as a smart person. I'm taking the time to talk with you. You know, we're here. Um, then I'm going to say, look, like your, your energy is finite. This is not where it's best spent, right? What are your goals? Like, even if you, you don't have to know your path, I don't still don't know my path. Um, your path will be what it is. If you are willing to listen to yourself, your inner voice, honestly, instead of the, the voice telling you that you don't know what you're talking about, but that gut, that feeling of what are you doing day to day? And is that making you feel like you're having an impact and you're taking it one step at a time, instead of trying to figure out what your whole like life trajectory is going to be. None of us can know that. Right. I mean, I think you have a great example yourself, right? Like 
certainly when you started out in, uh, you know, construction management, right, you didn't see the next step ahead of you necessarily. And you probably didn't see this step where you are now. You just can't know it, right? None of us read the future, but, um, well, maybe some of us, but, <laughs> but, you know, but I think that when you're listening um, to that gut, and for me, you know, I think early on when I was graduated and looking for a job and in the fortunate position of like kind of being in a, in a buyer's market, um, I had some opportunities to take jobs as financial planning assistants because I had a financial planning track and the two women owned firms that were wanted to hire me both served as you do high net worth clients and going through these final interviews and talking with these women, they're smart, wonderful women, but like the thought that I just couldn't get past was, am I really going to like sit at an office all day long and deal with like really rich people's money and their problems about that? Like that, like, it just wasn't the thing for me. <laughs> we obviously need wealth managers and folks deserve to, you know, manage their money responsibly and have folks that can help them with that. But for me, it wasn't going to be the thing that I was going to jump out of bed every day, be happy to do, right? There was something telling me, like, just don't do that. Like, something's going to come up. And so, you know, we're not always in a position to not take a job, but we are always in a position to listen to how our decisions are fulfilling our inner desires. And there may not always be like a monetary way to kind of move forward in the moment, but can you? get involved in a neighborhood organization, you know, can you volunteer for that role of leadership in whatever organization you're part of now? Can you just take things one step further? Um, because that's usually what leads you towards the path of more fulfillment and kind of meeting your goals and your, your, your dreams. Thank you. If anyone is interested in learning more about the community, uh, the CDFI, where can they find out that information? We are, we've got a website. It's, uh, you know, it, it's a labor of love. So it's in progress, <laughs> but um, risecdfi.org is the URL. Um, and it's also linked on our main RISE website as well. Thank you for being on today. Is there anything you want to leave us with uh, before we end this portion of the podcast? <laughs> yeah, no, I think we've covered a lot. Um, but yeah, no, I think that uh, we're always, our ears are always open to what, what are we doing? Are we filling those gaps? And I would just love to hear from folks who maybe have caught some blind spots that we might have. Um, we're always open to, to, to hearing from the community. I agree. Thank you again, Colleen. I appreciate it. Sure.